Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are working our way through the doctrine of the church of God, particularly the doctrine as expressed in the Nicene Creed that we began our service with today. As we recited, the creed confesses that the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic or universal, lowercase c, and the church is apostolic. Last week, we examined how the church is one. We saw that the church both is one and the church is to be one. That is, the church has been made one. It has been united by the work of Jesus Christ. And the church is to pursue and express that oneness through our unity for and our love with one another. This week we're moving on to the second mark of the church, that it is holy. The church is holy. Holiness means, very simply, that something is set apart. It is distinct. It is special. It is unique in some very important way. And in the New Testament, holiness usually contains a great deal of overlap with righteousness. For someone to be holy is for someone to be distinctly righteous, to be set apart from the unholiness found in the world. And the holiness of the church is no different. As we see, as we will see today, the church is both in possession of holiness and the church is to pursue holiness. The church is holy, and the church is to be holy. But to some of us, this doctrine sounds very strange, perhaps even wrong. We have seen and perhaps experienced great sin committed by Christians and by churches. We look around and we see impure churches around us. Might even see false churches professing the name of Christ. And when we see self-professing Christians who are not holy... How do we think about that? How is it that Christians who still sin can be called holy? How is it that an institution which is but a mere collection of self-professing sinners be also called holy? That's what we're going to look at today. And as we will see, the Bible teaches that the church is holy, and that encourages us. And we see that the church is to be holy... And that keeps us earnest in our pursuit of continued growth in holiness. And so let's begin by reading John 17, which contains Jesus' own prayers to the Father on behalf of His church. And as I read this chapter, pay particular attention to Jesus' petitions on behalf of His people that they may be separate from the world, that they may be distinct, that they may be kept from the evil one, that they may be sanctified. Or made holy. John 17. Hear the word of our Lord. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, that they, may, that they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I also desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us. Let's pray together. Father, we hear in the prayers of Christ a desire, a longing for your bride, for his bride to be made holy. We pray that you would do that. Very simply, that you would make us holy. Not for our name's sake, but for your name. That the world may know that you have indeed sent Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by noting from our text the first point, and that is the source of the church's holiness. The source of the church's holiness. Look again at verse 4. Christ prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, prays to the Father, confessing that His job is done. He has finished the race. He has completed His task. He has completed the work that the Father had given Him to do. And so what is that work? What is His mission? And how does that connect to the holiness of the church? Well, Christ and His completed work is the source, the foundation, the fountainhead of the church's holiness. 
Neither the church universal nor a particular congregation like Morning View possesses innate holiness. We are not holy in and of ourselves. We don't clean ourselves up of our personal sin. We don't pull ourselves out of the muck of worldly unrighteousness. Ever since the entrance of sin into the world by Adam and Eve, mankind has been born innately unholy, innately unrighteous. That doesn't mean that we are all born as bad as we possibly could be, but it does mean that we are born separated from a holy God. Scripture says that we are born enemies of God, at enmity with Him, born with sinful inclinations and selfish desires in our hearts. In fact, the first thing that a person must come to understand if he wants to become a Christian is that he is a sinner in need of saving. He lacks personal holiness. And that lack of holiness means that he stands under the just judgment of God. In short, he has to know he needs a Savior. And who is that Savior? That's Jesus Christ. And what is his mission of saving? It is to save his people. The Son of God had a task, and that task was to come and to make His bride holy. Theologians speak of this mission as the covenant of redemption. That is, before the foundation of the world, the triune God, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, agreed to a plan to save. The Father would send the Son to be the perfect sacrifice for His people. The Divine Son would agree to come and take on every part of human nature to be the appropriate and perfect substitute for His people. The perfectly holy sacrifice needed to atone for His bride. And the Divine Spirit agreed to apply the benefits of Christ's atonement to the elect people of God. That is the covenant of redemption, and that covenant is the foundation of any holiness that the church possesses. The church is made up of people who have been called by God out of the world. They have been set apart by divine initiative. The Holy Spirit has wrought in the hearts of God's people the fruit of Christ's redemptive work, which is gloriously multifaceted. The Spirit effectually calls sinful people and He unites them to Christ. And then by virtue of their union with Christ, they demonstrate the fruit of their work, of Christ's work, by their conversion to the faith and their repentance from sin. They are justified. That is, they are declared to be righteous, declared to be holy because of their union with the Son. You see, Christ possessed actual innate holiness and righteousness. And He demonstrated that while on earth. And the merit that He earned by His righteous life and His death on the cross are counted to each and every Christian. And it's on the basis of Christ's own righteousness counted to us that the Father can look at us and see us as righteous. That's how the church can be called holy, not because the church possesses innate holiness in and of itself. The church is not full of perfectly holy people, even now. The church is holy by virtue of its union to a perfectly holy Savior, Jesus Christ. The church, which is called in Scripture the Bride of Christ, is holy because of the work of the faithful bridegroom. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might make her holy. And to go back to John 17, one of the results of Christ's mission, of his work, one of the fruits that he has earned is that the church is different. 
The church is set apart from the world. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world, just like I am not of the world. The church, the people of God, has been transformed. We're of a different spiritual principle. We've been made into new creations, Paul says. We've been given new hearts. We've been awakened to the truth of God's lordship. We've been brought into His kingdom of light. And all because of the faithfulness of Christ assigned to His mission. And this truth, that Christ is both the source and the fountainhead of the church's holiness, is important for us to remember. For one, understanding the holiness of the church is important for our continued humility. It's important for us to remember that Christ is the source of our holiness for us to stay humble. That's because we Christians have a temptation. We will look at ourselves and then we'll compare ourselves to the world out there and we start to think that we actually are the holy ones. We pridefully compare ourselves to the other sinners out there. We judgmentally look down on them for their clear unholiness. And we forget that Christ's gracious work on our behalf is the only reason we have any holiness at all. Understanding that Christ and Christ alone is the source of my holiness is crucial for me to stay humble. But secondly, understanding the holiness of the church is important to keep us from despair. To keep us from despairing. It can keep us from feeling despair whenever we are discouraged by our own sin. Or when we look at the church or look at other churches, we look at other Christians, we even look at ourselves and we see sin. And we can be tempted to be discouraged, to think that we are far from God. But the doctrine of the holiness of the church, particularly the fact that Christ is the sanctifying source of the church, reminds us that no Christian is getting to heaven because they are perfect. No church is full of innately holy people. And so I can be very patient with those who are still struggling with sin. I can be patient. And when you fall into sin again, when your remaining sin keeps to, seems to keep getting the best of you, remember that Christ has completed His task. His mission has been accomplished. And part of that mission is making you holy through union with Him. You don't get into heaven because you have it all together. Rather, you're granted entrance into heaven. You are made holy because of Christ's faithfulness, not because of your own. And let that encourage you when you're discouraged by remaining sin you find in your life. Christ is the source of your holiness. Christ is the source. Second point, we've seen Christ as the source. Now let's look at the battleground for the church's holiness. The battleground for the church's holiness. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then down in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Christ makes clear in his prayer that our battleground for holiness remains in this world, in this life. We don't come to faith and then are magically transported to heaven. Rather, we're brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and then he leaves us here. In his good providence, we are left on this earth. We're left to battle on for our holiness. We are to remain in the world, but continue to pursue distinction from it, from the world. And we must battle for holiness. 
Some mistakenly believe that when we come to faith, we're immediately made perfectly holy. We're immediately sinless. But that doesn't fit with our experience as Christians, does it? And it doesn't fit with this text. If the battle were simply over when Jesus was resurrected, then why would Jesus pray for our sanctification and that we would be kept from the evil one? Rather, we are to understand that the church's holiness has an already element and a not yet element. We already are holy in Christ, and we are to become increasingly holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unless we be deceived to think that we have arrived, or that Christ is somehow unconcerned about our moral decisions after conversion, Christ here prays that we would be kept, that we would be distinct, that we would be made holy, that we would be sanctified. And so we would be wise to ask ourselves, are we growing in holiness? Are you growing in holiness? Are you holier than you were five years ago, one year ago? We could ask this as individuals or as a church. Is Morning View more holy than it was five years ago, one year ago? Christ's work not only saves us from the power of sin, but it will increasingly demonstrate within us a removal from the presence of sin. We should show an upward trajectory in our holiness. Not, not perfectly, there will be ups and downs in this life, but overall we should see a positive trend to our holiness. And if we don't, we should be concerned. You may be saying, but pastor, how? How do I do this? How do I grow in holiness? Well, that's our third point. The means of the church's holiness. The means of the church's holiness. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, which means make them holy, is what Christ is praying for. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Son asked the Father to sanctify His people in the truth. And then He equates the truth with the word of the Father. What does that mean? And how does that make us holy? Well, let's, let's begin with what Jesus says about the word he says very clearly your word is truth father thy word is truth well what word is he talking about is he talking about the bible well jesus didn't yet have a bible like ours the new testament hadn't been written he probably had access to the old testament writings but he certainly wasn't walking around with copies of all the scrolls of the old testament books This seemingly simple reference to the Father's Word has been interpreted various ways throughout church history. Augustine believed that Jesus' reference to the Father's Word in verse 17 is a reference to Himself. That is, the incarnate Word that John describes in the very first verses of the Gospel of John. John Calvin believed that thy word is truth refers to the doctrine of the gospel, which the apostles had already heard from the mouth of their master and which they were afterwards to preach to others. So is he talking about the Bible? Is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about the gospel? Well, I think that he's talking about all of God's revelation, the totality of his self-disclosure. I don't think we have to divide up God's revelation. God's word is united in its message and in its power throughout history, even if that word took different forms. 
So what God reveals in the Bible, which is his inscripturated word, is in complete alignment with his plan of redemption, which is his gospel word, which is affected through the apex of all truth, which is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a big statement. I'll say it again. What God reveals in the Bible, His inscripturated word, is in complete alignment with His plan of redemption, which is the gospel word. And that is brought about through the apex of all truth, which is the incarnate word of God, the Son. So let me unpack that for a minute. Jesus is the Word made flesh. The eternal Word, co-equal with the Father as we confessed in the Nicene Creed. He is made incarnate. He takes on flesh. Listen to the words from the beginning of this book in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This word was with the Father from the very beginning. Co-equal with the Father, both in eternality, in power, in life, and holiness. But the apostle doesn't just stop there. He explains who the word is. He explains what the word has done. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No law, was, for the law was given through Moses, he says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. See, this Word did not remain with the Father, but He took on flesh. He became a man. He came down to earth to make God known, to reveal to us who God is. The God whose word was heard in the Old Testament became flesh, and that word reveals God to us. Jesus, the word of God, makes statements like, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. He's the fullness of divine revelation. He's the, the apex of God's self-disclosure. So much so that he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To see Jesus, the Word of God, the truth of God, is to see the Father. And the author of Hebrews agrees with John that Christ is the apex of Revelation. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the eternally spoken word of God that took on flesh, that the perfect truth of God might be revealed to mankind. But God's word doesn't end with the life of Jesus. Jesus makes clear in John 17, 14, that he's given his word to the apostles. In this word, he has explained the redemptive significance of his life and work. He has revealed the will of the Father, the scope of his plan to the apostles. Further, Jesus explains that he will send the Holy Spirit to guide his apostles into all truth, John 16, 13. And so after Pentecost, when the fullness of the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell the apostles, the men of God will be led by the Spirit of God to put down in writing God's word for us. And so all of this theology 
about the word is important. It's important. It means that God's word is the means that God has provided for us to grow in holiness. God's word is the means that we are provided to grow in holiness. By treasuring the truth of God revealed to us in his word, we come to be more like God. But don't hear me saying this is some mechanical exchange, some kind of foolproof exercise. Many people pursue holiness in the wrong ways or by the wrong means. So let's discuss some of those wrong ways. If Christ has called for us to be made holy in the truth, then this list might be a list of wrong ways to pursue that truth or half-truths, misguided truth. I recently reread John Owen's masterful work on the mortification of sin or the killing of sin. And some of the ideas that he has in that book I'm going to adapt for us this morning. A first wrong way to seek holiness is to seek it through means not prescribed in God's Word. To seek, it, to seek holiness through means not prescribed in God's Word. Rather than seeking to be made holy, seeking to be sanctified through the truth found in God's revelation... Some people invent new methods to make themselves holy. You see, the Pharisees condemned of this sin in the Gospels. They had their man-made traditions, they had their ceremonies, and they were all crushing the people of God. The church throughout history has fallen into this in many different ways. Some people, well-intended perhaps, thought by wearing rough garments, or by joining monasteries and withdrawing from the world, by making extra-biblical vows of celibacy, by taking on certain diets, or even inflicting pain upon themselves, all sorts of other strange means of trying to relieve themselves of guilt and sin to make themselves feel holy. And we can fall prey to this kind of thinking as well. You may think that a vow to God, even an earnest vow to God, will make you holy. Have you ever prayed something like this? God, if you just get me out of trouble this one time, I swear I'll never do it again. Never do it. A lot of people think they've made a vow like this after they've indulged in their besetting sin. It's like the, the drunkard who wakes up with a crushing hangover and swears he'll never touch the drink again. And then he's back at the bar the next night. Right, a vow alone will not make someone holy. Proverbs says that a man returning to his sin is like a dog returning to his own vomit. But there may be other things that we may try and use to make ourselves holy, things not found in God's Word. We can be deceived to think by merely reading a big stack of books, reading big theology, then I will automatically be holy. If I just learn more, then I'm holier, right? Or maybe it's by having a carefully manicured presence, persona, social media presence. People thinking I'm holy will actually make me holy. Or maybe I can judge my holiness based upon how much I serve God, as if busyness for God automatically equates to conformity to God. There's an endless number of extra-biblical acts of penance we can perform, but none of those things have been prescribed by God as ways to pursue holiness. 
If we want to be genuinely holy, if we want to grow in holiness, we need to pursue such holiness according to the means that God has set apart in His Word. Scripture reading, prayer, fellowship with the saints, corporate worship with the body of Christ, acts of mercy and love, all done with genuine faith and humility in the God behind it all. Not in our acts, not in our works. We don't have to wonder how God or what God wants us to do to be holy. He's told us. We just have to obey. We have to obey what He clearly says in His Word. Second, a second wrong way to seek holiness is through the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the flesh rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To seek to kill sin without the Holy Spirit is to wage a fruitless war. We can be tempted to fight in the power of the flesh. Imagine with me a man that is tired of failing in his battle against lust. And so in his fleshly effort alone, he decides to empty his apartment of every picture of a girl. He cuts off cable. He throws away his phone. He lives like a digital monk in the middle of the city. And this man may initially think that he's finally rid himself of temptation and made himself holy. However, the problem was never merely physical or external. The problem was internal. His heart was the problem. And he will soon see that his lustful desires come back again and again, even if he removes all of the external stimuli. He's putting his hope in the accountability measures around him, rather than trusting in Christ alone to redeem him of his sinful desires. Yes, use the external accountability measures, but never put your faith in them. We do not battle against flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual, and we need the Holy Spirit's help if we're to ever make any progress in actual holiness. Third, a third wrong way to seek holiness is through the proper means, but not in the proper place. Through the proper means, but not in the proper place. Men may use proper biblical means, like prayer, fasting, meditation, things like that, but wrongly assigned to those means the automatic power of killing sin. They think by doing great deeds of devotion, then they will likewise grow in holiness by the same degree. I'll give you one example. Prayer is a powerful weapon in the battle for holiness in this life, but some have taken that, tr- that power of devotion and formalized it into practice that it's been gutted of all spiritual life, all actual sanctification at all. So, for example, a Roman Catholic can go and confess his sins to a priest. The priest might tell him, well, you can be absolved of your sins if you just say the Lord's Prayer five times. That man, simply by reciting a prayer, can be cleansed and made holy. And we could be tempted to think that way. Okay, I've woken up, I've prayed, I've read Scripture, had my quiet time. I prayed before I ate my breakfast. Thank you, Lord, for this food. I should be good now. I'm a little holier than I was when I woke up. But we can do this in a way that turns the biblical means, like Bible reading and prayer, into mere mechanisms 
for holiness. I'm going to check my box, go through the motions, now I'm holy. We've forgotten the first point of the sermon, that our holiness is purely a gift from God. We don't earn our holiness by our own works of the law, and such a mindset will deceive us into thinking that we're actually holier than we really are. And that's the kind of legalistic arrogance that the Pharisees had and were condemned for. We have to remember that sanctification is a gift of God's grace through the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that makes us holy. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and work according to His good pleasure. Yes, we are called to use the Word of God as a biblical means to grow in holiness, but whenever we do, whenever we demonstrate more holiness in our life, that's merely an example of the Spirit's work within us. And so we have no room to boast. It's God working in us. It's God who's worked according to His Holy Spirit. It's God who's helped us kill any sin. It's God who's planted within us a desire to be more like Jesus. Every bit of it, from start to finish, is grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, let us be a people who strive every day by the power of the Spirit to be growing in holiness, remembering the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Let us put off sin. Let us guard our minds and our hearts from sinful temptation. And let us put on the fruit of righteousness, of holiness. But let us never do it in our own strength. Never let us be deceived to think that we've gotten where we are by our own doing, as if we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by strength. It's not our strength. It's God's strength. It is a gift of God so that no man may boast, Paul says. And if you have not yet come to Christ, if you look at your life and you see that you're not living like, you're sh- like you should, that you're not pure in your motives, that you're not seeking God with your heart, that you're not full of love and mercy towards others, in short, that you're unholy, then hear today the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and died so that sinners might be made holy. He lived the perfectly righteous life and died a sinner's death so that his bride might be made spotless. And if you trust in him today, you too may be made spotless. You may be made clean. You may be made holy. No, you won't be perfectly freed from the presence of sin in this life, but you will be freed from its power and dominion over you. And you will be given the promise of a perfectly sinless life to come in the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. Trust in that Christ and you may be made perfectly holy. At church, we have the blessing of another means of God's grace. We get to conclude this service by reflecting upon the sacrifice of Christ in the place of His people. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of the perfectly holy one who was slaughtered so that a sinful people might be set free, might be made holy. Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed to atone for the sins of His people. If you're like the people of God that we see in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching found in God's Word, devoted to fellowship of the saints, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread, we invite you to join us at the table of God. But if you haven't yet been united to Christ by faith, or if you're out of fellowship with the bride of Christ, then we urge you to let the plates pass. I will pray and ask the Lord's blessing, and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you for the work that you have done. 
through the Son on behalf of your people and applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us, that you would make us holy, that the word proclaimed in the gospel and pictured at this table would be implanted deep within us, that you would use it to make us more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Table servants, please come.